Do you have a desire to help families thrive? Named one of the best Christian workplaces in Canada, Focus on the Family Canada is looking for skilled, passionate people to join our dynamic team. We are currently looking to fill positions in marketing, accounting, graphic design, donor relations, and web development at our head office in Langley, BC. If you or someone you know feels called to be part of our dynamic team, explore current job openings today at focusonthefamily.ca slash employment. And so somehow we're communicating the opposite of what Jesus said. We should come across as flawed people, thirsty people who have found a source, who have found something that satisfies, and it changes us, and it's good news, and we'd like you to have that too. That's Philip Yancey, and he's our guest today on Focus on the Family to share how you can be a witness for the gospel in a winsome way. I do hope you'll stay with us for this important conversation. Thanks for joining us today. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. John, I always enjoy talking to Philip. He's a best-selling author, and most importantly, he spent years investigating how we can be salt and light as followers of Christ. And today, Philip will share fascinating examples of how we can balance truth and love when we engage non-believers. Yeah, and Philip has written a number of books uh, exploring questions of faith, and we're about to hear a conversation, Jim, based on his book, Vanishing Grace, Whatever Happened to the Good News? And here's how, Jim, you began that conversation. The book of John in the New Testament introduces Jesus as the Word who became flesh, uh, full of grace and truth. That's right out of John 1. And it's not easy, but as followers of Christ, we're called to engage others in love and truth. And it is the eternal battle, I think, for all of us as Christians. And I know I've missed the mark before. I strive to do it well. Um, I'm pleased when I do that well, but again, it's just very difficult depending upon those circumstances. And Philip, it is great to have you with us. Thank you. My pleasure. And I'm so glad you started with that quote from John because uh, I look at Jesus kind of holding out two hands, grace and truth. And I look at church history, and we've worked really hard on that truth part. We did. Uh, last I heard, there were like 45,000 denominations in the world, and everyone thinks they've got a little little more corner of the truth than the other 49,999. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just wish we had denominations who would be striving to be more grace-filled than anybody else. Well, let me, let's start there. I mean, yeah. that difference, we all talk about it. We all struggle with it. I knew a Christian leader who once told me, you know, I understand God's grace, but sometimes when it comes to those that don't believe the way I believe, I'm afraid I'm going to become their friend and capitulate hmm. on the principles. I think that's a well-stated concern or well-stated fear that some people, depending upon your personality type, you might pull back because you think, man, if, if I like them, I might give in. Hmm. I haven't thought of that before. That's a... Uh... I suppose that's a danger, and I think probably the way to avoid that is just to be plugged into a community of shared values so that you get recharged whenever you're around them, whether it's a small group or a, a church service. And we, we have this model in the early church. We keep going back there because it works so well. Actually, there weren't many missionaries in the early church. There weren't many evangelists. They kept to themselves, but they would come together they would worship God, they would encourage each other, and then they would go out. And they were different than other people in the Roman Empire. And ultimately, 
as people looked at the way they lived, they said, I, I kind of would rather be one of those people than me. <laughs> I want what they've got. And, and I think that's how the church works best. If we, if we put out a sign of contradiction with the rest of the culture around us, our culture is very celebrity-oriented. It's very success-oriented, achievement-oriented. And Christians say, well, we're also supposed to care about other people, people who aren't very successful, achievement-oriented. We're here to serve. I think about the, the, toward the end of John, when Jesus had his last night with the disciples. And it's a beautiful passage, John 13 to 17, where it was his last shot, basically. He's giving them the final instructions, and then he's going to leave. He's going to ascend, first die, and then resurrect, and then ascend. But this is his last time to give what's most important. And I I go back, and of course, he starts by washing their feet. You're here to serve others, not to be served. And then he says, the mark of a a follower of me is love. And that's what people ought to think. Oh, that person loves a lot. Must be a Christian. (laughs) Yeah. Must be a Jesus follower. And then unity. He yeah. said, boy, I wish, I wish you in the church to follow would have the same kind of unity that we enjoy in the Trinity. Yeah, and we'll, we'll unpack that over the next few minutes. And I, you know, several things, the early church, the idea of love. Let's start with a recent Barna uh, study that found nearly half of non-Christians have negative feelings toward evangelicals. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's something right there. Although I do understand that, um, you know, the the word will become a stumbling block right. is one reference. Um, you know, Jesus reference bringing division because of, uh, you know, the distinction between the world and his followers. So that's going to be there. But why is, uh, you know, the concern around half of the non-believers feeling like, Christians, uh, they have negative feelings mm-hmm. toward Christians. Why, why do you think that exists? Well, what struck me about that Barnes survey is that just maybe 20 years before, 85% of non-Christians had a positive view of Christians. So maybe they really didn't believe in it and they weren't that interested in being religious themselves. But if a Christian was a neighbor, well, that's a good thing. Um, you know, they'll be a good role model for your kids, and maybe they'll cut the grass if you're if you've got a broken ankle or something. You know, yeah, that's it's, true. It's a good thing. And now, more than half say, "I don't want to live with next door to one of those Christians." And Barna tried to investigate that and find out what had happened in that 20-year period, and a lot of it had to do with divisive politics, mm. where. Christians became more identified, certainly in the media, through a political lens. If you read the New York Times or Time Magazine and tried to figure out what is an evangelical, you would think, oh, it's a radical conservative Republican. <laughs> you know? Right. That's what the that's what the media portrays. And in in some ways we are conservative, in some ways we're not. It depends on the issue. Right. You know, our our issues are are going to be a little different always from the surrounding culture because yeah. we take them from the Bible and the rest of culture doesn't always. You know, one of the difficult questions in that regard is, you know, one party does line up with a lot of the things that many Christians believe, like the right to life mm-hmm. and uh, the support of the police and all kinds of things like that. And, you know, again, c- taking care of the poor tends to lean in a democratic direction. Mm-hmm. So if you can, I mean, it hit that one because it's so true. It's it's complex. Um, right. Well, I, I think of a story I heard from the director of the 
Evangelical Alliance in the UK, much like our National Association of Evangelicals. Mm -hmm. And when John Major was the prime minister, this would have been maybe right. 30 years ago or so, right. he called him in and said, um, I hear about all these evangelicals and I'm interested in them. You know, I, I want to appeal to their votes, but uh, I can't figure them out. Can you tell me, are they, are they conservative or are they liberal? <laughs> and so the head of the Evangelical Alliance said, well, let's see, let's go down the list here. Um, they care about the poor, so some people would say that's liberal. But they're, they're strongly pro-life and against in, infanticide and euthanasia. Some people would say that's conservative. They're against racism. People, some people would say that's liberal. They support the rights of women. Some people would say that's liberal. But they believe uh, only in, in sex and within a marriage. Many would say that's conservative. And he went down the list and he said, <laughs> you tell me. Right. And Major said, well, I guess they're neither one. Well, they're a little bit of both. It right. depends on the issue. And I think there is a fine art, if I could describe it that way, to embracing those things that are biblical, like yeah. I would say the, the pro-life effort, and then keeping your eyes and ears open to things like helping the poor. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, people will say, well, that's not government's role, it's the church's role. But in soberness, you have to say that you know, the government has more wherewithal to put sure. money and resources toward sure. that effort than the Christian church does, although the Christian church has a great history of taking care of the poor. Uh, you mentioned two types of, of Christians, uh, pre-Christian and post-Christian. What, what do you mean by those two descriptions? Sometimes, I've done this so often, I'll be sitting on an airplane or in a lobby somewhere and uh, I'll start talking and People will say, what do you do? Well, I'm a writer. What do you write about? And I explain some of my books. Oh, <laughs> oh, one of those religious writers. Well, most of the time, I, yeah, these are matters of faith that I care about. Well, I used to be a Christian. And then they'll tell me some story about uh, being wounded by the church, the way it treated somebody, or uh, maybe they didn't like its stance on science, or or uh, a divorced person was treated, or a gay person was treated. And you know, they just tell me some sad story. And they expect me to defend the church, and instead I, I kind of laugh and say, oh, it's, it's worse than that. Let me tell you my story. Yeah, right. okay. <laughs> and I, I've just written this memoir, Where the Light Fell, that describes the toxic church I grew up in. It was in the South. It was on the wrong side of the civil rights movement and, and a lot of things. And, and yet I'll say to them, uh, do, do you really think it's a good trade to trade away the possibility of connecting with the Lord of the universe? because of the way some old lady treated your friend 30 years ago. That know? is a great question. It's the same one I ask. Like, is are it, you really going to give up yeah. your salvation? And that's kind of a post-Christian, yeah. because they've, been, they've got a wound there. And then you meet other people who really have no exposure, and they're kind of fascinated. You know, they, they know that people care about religion, and they see things on television, and they just, they've really never met somebody that'll sit down and talk to them about what they believe. Yeah. And you have a, usually you need a different approach there, just to explain so much that's good in our society comes directly out of the church, human rights, and, and care for the environment, and education, and medical care. You know, these all have Christian roots yeah. very deeply. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. Searching for the right insurance at the right price isn't always a quick click on the internet. 
Deeks Insurance has been a licensed insurance brokerage since before Googling was a thing. So if you're looking to save on auto insurance that includes multi-vehicle discounts and first accident forgiveness or home coverage with enhanced water options, then start your search by typing Deeks Insurance. You'll already start saving on time spent searching the internet for the best insurance. Visit deeksinsurance.ca to get started with a quote. Deeks Insurance, where family matters. Parenting is tough, and moms like Julie need encouragement when they feel overwhelmed. And the first thing I did was turn on the Focus on the Family podcast about parenting. That is my go-to because there's always a topic that is relating to what I'm going through at the moment. I'm Jim Daly. This season, help us give families hope like we did for Julie. Please give generously today at focusonthefamily.ca slash give. Do you worry about tomorrow? Does the future feel uncertain? Is the past too painful to bear? Focus on the Family Canada is here to help, so you never have to walk alone. Every morning, our staff lift up your prayer requests. If your burdens are too much to carry on your own, you can request a free, one-time call with one of our counselors at focusonthefamily.ca today. That's focusonthefamily.ca. We're here to help. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. You mention in the book this idea that non-believers are lost or people who are thirsty potentially, that God's love is for every person. Mm-hmm. I, I totally ascribe to that because I think it's so true and so accurate. I don't think God's against anybody. He wants everyone to know him. Uh, how do you... <laughs> How do you remember that when you're in the heat of a spiritual battle with your neighbor or something like that? Chuck Colson told me once, and I don't think he coined it, but he used it often, and that is you don't get mad at a blind man who steps on your foot. And he parlayed that into spiritually, don't get mad at people that don't understand the way of God. That's very good. And I, I think it's true. It's been a guiding principle for me. Right. I got that phrase, thirsty, from Henry Nouwen. I'm sure you know that name. Right. Henry uh, was a priest, uh, spoke a lot of times to evangelical audiences, spent the last part of his life not at Harvard and Yale, where he had earlier taught, but working with the severely mentally challenged people in La Arche in Toronto. Back when the AIDS epidemic first started, so this would have been when Ronald Reagan was president, really, he heard about this disease, and he heard that there were a lot of gay men. It was actually called the gay men syndrome by uh-huh. the CDC back then, because almost everybody that was reporting this strange disease were part of the homosexual male community. Right. So he heard there was a there was a clinic going on in San Francisco, and he flew out there, and he said it was uh, it was just so sad, an open ward, and all of these guys were going to die soon because there was no treatment at all in, in those days. And he said, I just went up and down the rows of men, and he said, and I said, I'm a priest, so I like to listen to people's stories. That's what we do. Can you tell me your story? And he said some of them would almost spit at him and say, I don't want any of this stuff, this religious stuff. But others would tell their stories, and he said, Again and again, I heard people who were thirsting for love. And I would say, did you find it? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. did, it did it satisfy you? And he went on and, and talked about the, uh, the woman at the well. You know, Jesus, I see that you're thirsting. 
has the water satisfied you? Mm-hmm. No, it hasn't. Um, would you like to know a living water that does satisfy you? And he said, when I returned from that, my prayers changed. When I was around people that offended me in some way, I used to pray, Lord, help them to see the light or help me to be kind to these morally offensive persons. He said, now I pray for thirsty people. I said, God, help me to see those that even offend me as thirsty people. If I could see them as thirsty people and realize my job is to point them to the living water that indeed satisfies, that really turned a corner in how he prayed and how he saw people that he disagreed with profoundly. Yeah. You know, um, that reminds me of a theologian that I know who's still living who said to me on the phone one time, quite appropriately, I think, we were talking about some difficulties in the culture, and he was referring to some Christians that were edgy, very uh, upset about some things, probably in the political arena. And he said, man, you don't have to go out of your way to be hated. Hmm. And I, that's another great statement that, you know, the offense of the gospel should be the offense, not you and your personality. Yeah, yeah. And I, that's another guiding principle, you know, that yeah. if you're the one preventing someone from coming to know the Lord, you're in some deep weeds there spiritually, in my yeah. opinion. If it's your personality, your aggression, your behavior towards someone who doesn't know the Lord, if that's what's preventing it, you don't wear that as a badge because I don't think the Lord will be happy with that in the end. Speak the truth, mm. but do so in love. Relate to that. I mean, the clanging symbol and all the great scriptures yeah. we have that if you don't have love, you really don't have anything. That's right. That's right. We tend to ignore those. We do. And that reminds me of uh, a great phrase from Martin Luther King Jr., who, of course, was a very religious man. He was a clergyman. And he, he said, we have to fight for some issues. They're, they're worth fighting. But we use different weapons. We use the weapons of grace. Uh, Phil, you have a story about a Christian filmmaker who attended Sundance Film Festival. What happened in that context? Because right. I think these illustrations are really helpful for us. Right. Yeah, he takes a group of uh, seminary students from Fuller Seminary, where he teaches classes in filmmaking, to Sundance, and Sundance is primarily, you know, the Hollywood, uh, edgy, uh, independent films, you know, things that you wouldn't even get across. Started by Robert Redford, I think. That's right, yeah. Yeah. And so he had a group of about 20 Christians, and they attended this one that was, the film was making fun of the church and how ridiculous it was and how strict and and, uh, just a lot of negatives about the church. And people were hooting and hollering, yeah, yeah, you know, those are people who had been wounded probably at one point. And so they had an audience interaction time, and a couple of people asked questions, and then he stood up and said, my name is so-and-so, and and I'm from, uh, I'm an evangelical Christian, and I come from Fuller Seminary. And things went really quiet. (laughs) And he said, I just want to apologize for the ways that the church has, has wounded some of you. Um, I don't agree with everything you said in the film, but some of it is true, and I know it's true, and, and we're wrong, and I'm sorry, and sat down. He said it was just silent. And then afterwards, all these people came up to him and said, I've never heard a Christian apologize. Thank yeah. you so much for that. Let me tell you my story. And they would tell their story. And he's been going ever since. He takes this, that same group every year. So he's gotten to know some of the filmmakers, and it's changed the whole spirit of the kind of the anti-Christian spirit of the of the festival, they have a the Christians have a place, they have a voice there now, and right. it's, a, it's an attractive voice, not yeah. an offensive y- voice. You know, Philip, I had an experience similar to that, and I've never shared this publicly. And again, the names aren't important, but I remember reaching out 
to someone in the LGBTQ community to ask him if he wanted to have coffee just to meet. And I know that that group and that particular organization saw us as enemies. Mm -hmm. And that was part of it. I wanted to let him know I'm a human being just like he is, basically. So we met at a coffee place, and it was profound. Um, He brought a bunch of research that he had looked at our website and had Mm -hmm. some corrections for us in the way that we use terminology in that space, the LGBTQ space. And, uh, you know, so I thanked him for that. Thanks for doing that homework. I'll take a look at and have the team, you know, make sure that we're in agreement on those things. But I remember saying to him, and I'm sitting here having this wrestling match with the Lord, going, Lord, why did you want me to meet with him? Because I did feel that impression from the Lord to do this, to reach out. And what wafted through my mind and through my heart was, tell him I love him. Hmm. You you can imagine the conversation that immediately starts happening. Like, Hmm. Lord, are you sure? I'm sitting in a public (laughs) coffee place. But I did it. I just said to him, hey, I think the only reason that I wanted to meet today is to let you know something, and that is God loves you. Boom, he started crying Wow! right at the table. And I said, could you tell me why it's touched a nerve? And he said, I just never expected anyone from Focus on the Family to tell a gay man that God loved him. Hmm. And that, you know, that, woof, I mean, that is the profound truth. And it's not, you know, no sin keeps us from God. Yeah, God knows us. He loves us. He created us. And I just felt like, wow, um, you know, we don't, we shouldn't supersize sins, right? Sure. Sin is sin, according to Scripture. And uh, if I look at a woman and have lust in my heart, the Lord said I have already committed adultery, right? Mm. So let's get rid of that one, <laughs> you know, when yeah. you start wanting to edit yeah. the book. Well, every every religion says that God loves good people. That's nothing new. But Jesus came with a different message. God loves bad people. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not one of them. That's radical. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and you look at his parables, you look at the people he hung around. Uh, who's the hero of the parable of the prodigal son? Is it the, the older brother who did everything right? No, he looks pretty bad in Jesus' story. It's the prodigal who did everything wrong, and yet God loved him anyway. God yeah. loves enemies. God loves bad people. And the, the scene in the temple where there's a Pharisee saying, well, I'm glad I'm not that guy over there. He's a sinner. And the sinner only has one prayer, God help me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, which prayer is God listening to? And it's pretty clear what the answer is, mm. the one who admits the need. And grace is is absolutely free. You can't do anything to earn it, to deserve it. There's no 10 steps I can give to you to make God love you. It doesn't work that way. God already loves you. And grace is free, but it's a gift. And to receive a gift, you have to have open hands. If your hands are closed tight in a fist, which some religious people do, I'm better than 99% of the people in this country, then you miss the gift of grace. It falls to the ground. Right. And when you're reading, especially the Gospels, Jesus' interaction with people, what's really profound, if you try to take in the aroma of what he's encountering, he seems to like to hang out with sinners. Matthew, the tax collector, the woman at the well that we talked about, the woman caught in adultery. Mm. I mean, it it seems like those are people that knew what truth is better than the religious leaders at the time. They knew what they were, that they didn't measure up. And when he pointed it out, boom, their hearts went toward him, as opposed to the religious people who Mm -hmm. thought they had it all together and ended up hating him to the point of rallying to crucify Mm -hmm. him. 
I remember when I was writing the book, The Jesus I Never Knew, I was puzzled by why Jesus was so upset at the Pharisees. Because as I was doing research, it seemed like they were closest to what he believed and how he behaved as anybody on, on earth. You know, they, they worked to follow every one of the laws in the Old Testament. They were Bible-believing. They were teaching, you know. And yet, in, in chapters like uh, Matthew 23, Luke 11, Jesus is really pretty tough on the Pharisees. Oh, They're yeah. a bunch of whitewashed tombs, you know. And the more I read about it, the more I decided the problem with Pharisees is that they hung around other Pharisees all day. <laughs> and they started competing, and Jesus was scornful. Here you, you tithe your kitchen spices, your salt and pepper, your cumin, your oregano, whatever. You make sure the church gets 10%, but there are these huge issues of injustice going on around you, um, and you don't care about those things. Yeah. And if you're around people who are just like you, it really distorts your vision, and that's why it's so important, as Jesus told us, to go out and serve people who are unlike us. If you hang out in a homeless shelter, if you hang out in a prison, you're going to be tested. Yeah. Your faith is going to be tested, and you're going to, you're going to understand it's easy to categorize these people, to dismiss them, to think of them as kind of a sociological group. When you get to know them as human beings, then you can feel the compassion that eventually attracted people to Jesus in his day and should attract people to us. Absolutely. You know, you're just reading the New Testament several times, obviously, and you start looking for the core themes. And there's so many, so many wonderful things in the New Testament. Um, Old Testament, too, but, you know, Jesus arrives, and we kind of tilt into that New Testament teaching that he gives us. But two things seem like, you know, billboards for me. One is salvation through Christ and Christ alone, and don't become a Pharisee. <laughs> Those are kind of the two billboards of the New Testament. Yeah. And it sends a message, you know, that don't think more highly of yourself than you should. That kind of reminds me of a, of a little anecdote that I put in this book, Vanishing Grace, and somebody had surveyed the three phrases people most want to hear. Hmm. Uh, the first one is, I love you. The second one is, I, I'm sorry. And the third one is, supper's ready. <laughs> and this preacher said, actually, that's a good summary of the gospel. You know, <laughs> In what way? Well, that God loves us, that he accepts our apology, our repentance, and there's a feast awaiting for us. <laughs> Boy, that is good. What a good place to land. Uh, Philip, this has been such a good conversation. we got more to cover, so let's come back next time and keep the conversation going. Can we do it? Let's do it. And that concludes part one of a great conversation, Jim, that you had with Philip Yancey. And I really appreciate how he highlighted the gospel. And as Philip said, uh, so simply, God loves you. He forgives you. He invites you to enjoy fellowship with him. And for our listeners, be sure to join us tomorrow for part two of the discussion. Now, in the meantime, you can find more resources on our website to help you win your spiritual walk. We have a free booklet that you can download. It's called Coming Home. Uh, it's a terrific little resource to share with friends or loved ones. It describes very simply what it means to trust in Christ. You'll find it at focusonthefamily.ca. 
And if you're a believer in Christ, consider helping us share the good news with others. Order a copy of Philip's book, Vanishing Grace, directly from Focus on the Family Canada. When you do, the proceeds go right back into helping families. Please reach out, get the book, and help us offer hope to families throughout Canada. Donate as you can to the ministry and request your copy of Vanishing Grace, Whatever Happened to the Good News. You can do that when you call 800, the letter A and the word family, 800-232-6459. Or once again, you can find us at focusonthefamily.ca. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller inviting you back as we once again help you and your family thrive in Christ. Thank you.